Jay Sigurd here, Starting Point Podcast. We're talking science, faith, and a whole lot more. Buckle up, because it's go time. Well, thanks for joining me on today's broadcast. We are continuing and finishing our short two-part series entitled The Big Picture. We just finished part one, which was the Old Testament in a nutshell. I covered all of history that the Old Testament covers from creation all the way up to the arrival of Christ, just hitting the major people, major events, giving you the big picture, and you will never guess what part two is about. Yes, it's the New Testament in a nutshell. We definitely won't be getting bogged down in all the details, just focusing on the general flow of history from the arrival of Christ right up through the beginning of eternity, which is what the New Testament encompasses. And again, this is starkly different than all the previous podcasts I've done. In a sense, all the other ones, except for part one of this series, included making certain claims and then defending them like the origin of the universe, the existence of God, the the inspiration of the Bible. This time, simply conveying what the Bible depicts as a timeline of events. I won't be stopping to defend anything. I'll get to that in future episodes when we zero in on specific topics. But before we get any further, you know the drill. Please make sure you subscribe to these podcasts so you can be alerted when the new ones come out. And it also greatly helps us if you're feeling it's appropriate to leave us a five-star review. We're reaching more and more people in more and more countries around the world. That's very exciting. And I'm appreciative of my listeners who are helping with all of that. I also mentioned last time that even if you paid them 50 million dollars, most people would not be able to give you the big picture of the Bible. So hopefully this two-part series will go a long way in helping every listener have a much better idea of the flow of events covered in the Bible, which will also aid in making more sense of any individual portion that you read or hear about, giving you a structure and a framework in which to place everything. You kind of know like, well, what was happening before this? Why did that happen? What, What happened after that? You kind of need that larger framework, the big picture. So what can you expect today? Well, we're going to restrict our focus to the New Testament. Since virtually nothing in the New Testament makes sense apart from the backdrop of the Old Testament, if you missed part one, make sure you go back and listen to it, preferably before you actually finish this one. In fact, if you want, I'll wait while you do that. Just let me know when you're done. That's not going to work. So, Seriously, if you haven't heard the Old Testament, I would highly recommend pausing this, listening to that, and then coming back here. But I mentioned last time, too, that the Bible is an integrated message system. We got the Old Testament and the New Testament, but they're not completely disconnected. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. There are a lot of things about the New Testament that are in the Old Testament. You don't quite realize that until you get to the New Testament later. And then the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. A lot of the things that you read in the Old Testament make even more sense once you see the bigger picture of the New Testament. You can look back and say, wow, okay, that makes perfect sense. It makes even more sense now because it's an integrated message system. It's all divinely inspired. I'm going to be exercising divine restraint, not going into all the details and requiring even more restraint to not go into an analytical defense of what we're covering. You know, as an example, 
I'm going to mention the resurrection of Christ, but I won't be stopping to share the strong line of evidence demonstrating that it actually happened. That'll be hard, but we'll get to that in a future episode. Now, when you look at the New Testament, you can break up the writings into about five sections. First section would be what we call the Gospels. You've probably heard of that. And again, some of you know all of this really well. Some of you, it's kind of new to you. So the New Testament, first section would be the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus mainly on the life of Jesus and a lot of those details. John focuses a little bit more on the deity of Jesus, that he was actually God. Second section would be the book of Acts that talks about the starting of the church. Third section would be letters written by the Apostle Paul. Some of those letters were to churches directly. Others were to church leaders. You know, like Romans was written to the church at Rome. Rome, uh, Ephesus, that's Ephesians. The church at Galatia, that's Galatians and so on. Church leaders were like, you know, Timothy. So first and second Timothy. Fourth section. These are letters written to larger groups like the book of Hebrews and James. And then the fifth section, Revelation, the book of Revelation, end time events, the revealing of Jesus Christ. It's a great book. Um, in fact, I was at a breakfast shop the other day talking to someone and a few feet away was a guy sitting at a table by himself and he was, I could tell that he was actually reading his Bible. So I walked over there and I said, oh, that, that's a great book. I, I won't tell you how it ends. I want to spoil it for you. And he just kind of laughed. But uh, the book of Revelation is, is phenomenal. And we'll mention that at the end of this overview here. Before I jump into the New Testament in a nutshell, I'm going to do a super, super short review of the Old Testament. This is not a replacement for listening to that podcast if you haven't heard it. But I want to give you the very, very, very quick backdrop that sets the scene for what we're jumping into in the New Testament. So the Old Testament could be summarized this way very briefly. God creates everything to begin with, including Adam and Eve, and everything's perfect. Adam and Eve sin. They separate themselves from God, from their Creator, and that brings in death and a curse into God's perfect creation. But God immediately has a plan to fix everything. He's going to send His own Son as a Messiah to die on a cross. Um, after Adam and Eve sin, they get kicked out, separated from God. Mankind becomes so incredibly corrupt that God judges the entire world with a worldwide flood, the Genesis flood. After that, God chooses a group of people, the Jews, the Israelites, through which God's Son, the Messiah, would be born. And then God gives his people revelation regarding himself, who he is, what he wants from them, and tells them all about his son, the coming Messiah, who's going to be the Savior of the world. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. After that finishes, there's about 400 years where God is not communicating to his people anymore for a number of reasons, so they kind of call it the 400 years of silence. And then at the end of that, that ushers in the New Testament. So we're going to jump into the New Testament, and like I did last time with the Old Testament in the previous podcast, I gave you a super short version, 30,000-foot view, and then we went in and looked at a few details. So I'm going to do that with the New Testament as well. Really short description. And then we'll go back, revisit it, and talk about some of the details we skip. So here's a super short version of the New Testament. So Jesus is miraculously born. He starts a ministry when he's about 30 years old. He chooses a small group of men as his disciples and trains them. 
calls people to repent and to trust him as the Messiah. He's crucified and rises again on the third day, which he himself predicted. He returns to heaven after appearing to many people, confirming his resurrection, and he promised that he would return again. His disciples that he had mentored are given some miraculous powers through the Holy Spirit to use in spreading this new gospel message and to usher in the church era, moving away from temple worship. And today we are currently in that church age awaiting his promised return, Christ's promised return. And when Christ does return, it will be in the context of great judgment on the earth and judgment on all those who have rejected him and rejected his offering of salvation as a free gift. That's the New Testament in a really super short nutshell. So let's go back and talk about a few more details. So with the arrival of Jesus, just before he comes on the scene, we have John the Baptist. Everyone's heard of John the Baptist. Well, he's born, and this was foretold over 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. He said he's a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. It's Isaiah chapter 40. So the Old Testament prophesied that this guy would come on the scene, John the Baptist, announcing the arrival of the Messiah. John baptized a lot of people as a symbol of cleansing and a commitment to God and the coming Messiah. This baptism didn't forgive sins or anything. It was a symbol, and he was preparing people to meet the Messiah who was coming. So Jesus was actually born shortly after John the Baptist was born, but it wasn't quite as public. And this, his arrival, Jesus' arrival, ties back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis. The creation account, Adam and Eve sin. I mentioned that God has had a fix. He had a, a plan to fix everything immediately. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's a little cryptic when you read it with the head of the serpent and all that, but it's a reference to God would send his son, the Messiah, to crush Satan and have ultimate victory. So that was prophesied way back in Genesis 3.15, and now Jesus is born and fulfilling that. That was the first prophecy given in the Bible. Jesus actually fulfilled about 300 prophecies in his life, death, and resurrection. Why so many? Well, if there were just two prophecies about this coming Messiah, that he'd be male and he'd be at least six feet tall, do you know how many people in history could qualify for that? I'd qualify. (laughs) Um, But by having so many prophecies stated about this Messiah, nobody's going to fulfill that by accident, and they couldn't have even forced that because of the details of some of these prophecies. We'll get to that in more detail in a future episode, talking about evidence for the deity of Jesus and his resurrection and all that. Um, But he had an attack on his life immediately. So shortly after he's born, Herod, who was in charge in the area, um, he issued an edict to kill all male children two years and under because he had heard there's an, an arrival of a new king. Well, he's in, he's Herod's the king. He's intimidated by this, so he's thinking, okay, if I just have all the male children two and under killed, that'll kill this new king. Wherever he is, I don't even have to find him. Well, Mary and Joseph were warned about this, so they fled to Egypt until uh, that problem was over. Then they came back. So, but just very interesting, there's an attack on God's plan immediately. 
So Jesus begins his ministry when he's about 30 years old. We don't know a whole lot about Jesus prior to that. The Bible didn't find it necessary to tell us all these details of what he was like when he was three and a half and eight and all that. Probably not as significant. But when he began his ministry, that's when the Bible starts giving us many details. And Jesus didn't start out by loudly proclaiming, I am the Messiah, I'm God, obey me or else. And think about this. If you meet someone and you immediately tell them, you're a Democrat, or you're a Republican, or you're a Libertarian, or whatever, they might instantly shut you down and not want to listen to a thing you have to say. However, if if you just share a few very intriguing things, and then a little bit more, and then more, you start to gain some credibility so that when you do announce your official affiliation, people would be much less likely to just write you off altogether. That's kind of what Jesus did. He knew that once he went public with a lot more direct message, the masses, especially the religious leaders, would want to take his life. And Jesus needed and wanted to accomplish quite a bit before he was going to be crucified again. He came specifically to be crucified, but there were things he was going to do before that happened. So Jesus chooses a small group of men to disciple them, the 12 disciples. So he trains them. And he also calls people to repent and to trust in him. Jesus not only claimed to be speaking truth from God, he demonstrated it through his authority by performing various miracles, similar to like the Old Testament prophets. So back in the Old Testament, you got these prophets saying, thus saith the Lord. Okay, well, you can say that, but how do we know what you're saying is really from God? You say that, but how would we know? Well, these prophets were given miraculous abilities to say, I'm not only telling you this, I'm backing it up through these miracles. Well, Jesus did something similar. He made a lot of bold claims, but then he also backed it up. Like One example, um, he had told the group and crowd that he was around that someone's sins were forgiven. And the religious leaders just went crazy. They went ballistic thinking, this guy is claiming to forgive sins. Only God can claim to forgive sins. This is blasphemy because they thought, this Jesus guy, he's, he's claiming to be God, that he can forgive sins. And in Jesus' response, this is from Matthew 9, he asked these Pharisees and religious leaders, which is easier, just to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man, referring to himself, has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to this paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the guy got up and he went home. Jesus performed a miracle right in front of them saying, I'm not just making these miraculous claims. I'm doing miracles to verify these things are true and they are from God. So he did that over and over. He did a lot of miracles. Uh, healed the blind, healed the deaf and mute man, raised people from the dead. That's a big one. That that should have a lasting impact, right? He fed the multitudes. He walked on water. He calmed storms. He turned water into wine. Everyone knows about that one. So he did all these things to confirm what he was saying and the authority that he claimed for himself. Well, eventually, when the timing is right, Jesus publicly allows himself to be acknowledged as the Messiah. That was when he entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, riding in on a donkey, that's a sign of peace. And that was the whole point of Jesus coming the first time. He came as a humble sacrifice, not as a vindictive ruler. 
He came as a sign of peace on this donkey. This was Palm Sunday. You've heard of Palm Sunday? That's when he entered into Jerusalem on the donkey and people were praising him and laying the palm branches down and, uh, and he accepted that. And other people are saying, hey, you, you should tell them to stop. You know, they're, they're thinking you're the Messiah. Don't let them falsely do that. And Jesus basically said, if they don't say anything, the rocks will cry out. Because he was like, what they're saying is true. This is, I am the Messiah. This was prophesied by Zechariah almost 500 years earlier. In the Old Testament, Zechariah 9, 9, 9, chapter 9, verse 9. He predicted this would happen. His entrance into Jerusalem, the timing of it was also foretold by the prophet Daniel. There's this 70-week prophecy in Daniel, and the weeks were weeks of seven years, and and I don't have time to go into all those details right now, but Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9, had the 70 weeks of prophecy, and when you when you break it down, it leads exactly to the time that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on this donkey claiming and publicly receiving acknowledgement as the Messiah. It's just it's kind of chilling how powerful the Bible is and these prophecies are. So the Jewish leaders hated Jesus because Jesus basically came on the scene and said, it's not about you following all your rules and all the extra rules you guys have made up in addition to what you find in the Old Testament. It's really about focusing on faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Well, they hated that because they they liked and were very proud of the club that they were in by the do's and the don'ts, the very proud people. So they wanted to get rid of them. They were always conspiring to get rid of them. So one of Jesus's 12 disciples Judas, uh, betrayed Jesus. He kind of worked with these leaders saying, I'll, I'll show you who he is. I'll take you to him. And then the, the one that I give a kiss to, that's the guy that you want. This is a Jesus guy. So the chief priests and elders came into the garden where Jesus had gone to pray with his disciples in preparation for his own crucifixion. Jesus knew that was happening. The disciples, it was kind of lost on them. They just didn't quite get what Jesus's plan was at that time. So Judas was with these leaders, and he helped hand Jesus over to them. And Jesus went willingly. He could have just wiped them all out miraculously, but no, this is what Jesus came for. It wasn't a fun thing to do, but he was doing the will of his Father, and that's what he was going to do. So they snag him, and then he goes through a number of trials. There were three trials in a religious court and three in a Roman court. In the religious court under the Jews, Many of the Jews' own laws were actually violated in these trials. It was not a fair—you talk about unfair trials, this is like the ultimate of unfair trials. They weren't supposed to have any trials during the feast time. This was during feast time. If the death penalty was to be given, a night must pass before the sentence is carried out. Jesus was actually crucified only a few hours later. And the Jews had no authority to execute anyone. And no trial was to be held at night, but the trial of Jesus was at night, basically shortly before dawn. And the accused was to be given counsel or representation. Jesus didn't have any. And they weren't allowed to ask self-incriminating questions, but they pelted Jesus with those. So they, they violated their own laws in this kangaroo court. And in the Roman court, he was appearing before Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea. Jesus was charged with inciting people to a riot, forbidding people to pay their taxes, which he wasn't forbidding them to do that, and he was claiming to be king. Well, Pilate, this Roman governor, he just saw no fault in Jesus, 
He found no reason to kill him. So he sends him back to Herod. Herod is the ruler of Galilee. Rome was in charge. But within the group of Jews, Herod was appointed to, to rule over those people, but Herod was under the authority of Pilate. So Pilate says, I, I don't want anything to do with it. He pushes him back to Herod says, this is your problem. Well, Herod, he was afraid of the political pushback on this, so he sends Jesus back to Pilate. Pilate really didn't know what to do, but he thought, well, if I have him severely, if I have Jesus severely beaten, Maybe this would appease the Jews. I don't want to kill this guy. He hasn't done anything wrong. So he had, unfortunately, he had him severely beaten, but even that didn't appease people. Even Pilate said, you know what, this time of year we always release one prisoner. I give you Barabbas. He was guilty of murder. Terrible guy. The Jews didn't you know, want uh, Jesus freed. They wanted Barabbas, this terrible criminal, freed. Instead, they wanted Jesus crucified. They demanded it, and we know what happened. Jesus was crucified. A lot of details there. I'm not stopping to go through all those. We know that three days later, Jesus rose again. He predicted that himself, which this is really hard to to keep going here and not stop and talk about the details and all the evidence. But Jesus, in confirmation of his resurrection, he appeared to the remaining 11 apostles. Again, Judas had gone off and hung himself. Um, And Jesus appeared to a few others. And he also, on one occasion, appeared to over 500 people all at once, confirming, I, yes, I was crucified, but I rose again. Here I am. Then Jesus returns to heaven after the confirmation of his resurrection. And his disciples that remain, they were given some miraculous powers through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the day of Pentecost that they received these powers, uh, not to do magic shows, but to use in spreading the gospel message and to usher in this new church era, moving away from the old temple worship. So now these disciples were supposed to go out and spread this gospel message, and as confirmation that this was actually true, this is what Jesus was teaching, they were given miraculous powers as well, and they were to go out uh, under the, the Great Commission, which we find in Matthew 28, which in part says, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. It's everything Jesus commanded the disciples to do. So now they're supposed to go around the world and spread that message. Well, many of the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus when he was here, they hated the Christians and the Christian church. They rejected Jesus' claims of having been the Messiah. They were sticking to the Old Testament ways and they were proud of it. And they were still awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. So they were, they were big on the Messiah coming. But when Jesus came and claimed to be the Messiah, they were like, no, it can't be you because the Messiah is going to come and vindicate us and wipe out the Romans and rule and reign. Uh, eventually, Jesus will come and do something similar to that. But the first time he was coming as a suffering servant, and they totally missed that from the prophecies in the Old Testament. So because Jesus didn't play the game they wanted him to play, they missed all that. They missed all those prophecies. His second coming, yes, will definitely involve this great and final judgment. And while the Bible only comments specifically about James, one of the disciples, being put to death by the sword, probably beheading, tradition and historical records tell us that each of the 12 disciples, except for John, were martyred for their faith. They believed in this message so much they were willing to die for it. Uh, Apostle John, he was imprisoned in the Isle of Patmos, and that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. We'll get to that shortly. 
Then another interesting character comes on the scene, a man named Saul of Tarsus. Some of you already know exactly who he is. Um, he was one of the chief Pharisees, this religious sect, you know, some of whom were leaders in the synagogue. Saul was very, very instrumental in the persecution of these new Christians, people who were following Christ, Christians, followers of Christ. Christ. Galatians, Galatians were people who were from Galatia, you know, I think Romans, and people who were following the ways of Rome. Christians were followers of Christ. Well, this Saul guy was persecuting these Christians because Saul was all into the Old Testament laws and all that, and he was directly, indirectly responsible for having many of them put to death. And he thought that what he was doing was in the name of God. Doesn't that sound familiar today? There are many religious people today who are actually killing others in the name of God. Well, while this guy Saul was on the road going to Damascus, he had an encounter with someone, the risen Christ, who asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul was so overwhelmingly transferred, transformed by this encounter, uh, Jesus changed his name to Paul. In the Old Testament, we see people's names being changed because of a dramatic shift in how God is using them. So Saul's name is changed to Paul. Yes, the Apostle Paul. And he goes on to become the author of most of the New Testament writings today. So Paul, after his miraculous conversion, he ends up going on three missionary journeys. The first one is primarily in the northeast portion of the Mediterranean. Second one through many areas, including Asia Minor and Greece, and then goes back to Jerusalem. The third one is similar to the second journey, and he revisits a lot of the church that he, churches he helped start. And he wrote a lot on these journeys, mainly to churches to help them get their start, like Thessalonians, to the church at Thessalonica, Corinthians, to the church at Corinth, and Galatians, Romans. And in about 60 A.D., this is a little less than 30 years after Christ has risen and gone back to heaven, um, Paul returns to Jerusalem, but he gets arrested by the Pharisees who deport him to Rome, awaiting trial. While Paul is in Rome and in prison, he writes more. He writes the book of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and the book of Titus and First and Second Timothy. Tradition tells us that Paul was beheaded for his faith in about 67 A.D., other books were written after Paul's death, including four books by the Apostle John from about 90 to about 95 AD when he was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation, which is a bookend. Genesis is the beginning of everything. Revelation is the end of everything. It's the restoration of all things, and it is ultimately the revelation of Jesus Christ himself, which the Bible is all about Jesus from beginning to end. Jesus is even the creator. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, for him, by him, through him, all things were created. It's all about Jesus. If someone ever asks you a Bible question, you don't know the answer, just say Jesus. <laughs> Most of the time, it's probably going to be the right answer. Um, so we are currently in the church age. So the church starts in the book of Acts. Um, followers of Christ, these Christians, we are in that church age awaiting the promised return of Christ. So Christ went back to heaven. He said, I'm coming back. We are our awaiting that return, which is detailed in the book of Revelation and foretold in the Old Testament as well. And guess what I'm not covering in this short overview podcast? The interpretation of Revelation and end time events. Scholars have been debating this for years and the exact sequence and timing of end time events. And there are a number of different views. I'm 
just not sure I'm ready to announce to the world the correct interpretation. I don't know that they're ready for that. Actually, I don't know. I, I really don't know exactly how things are going to play out. I have thoughts, somewhat strong thoughts, but I'm not 100% confident. And fortunately, no matter what the exact details turn out to be, it doesn't have any effect on what I need to do now, and that is to share the gospel message which is with as many people as I can as God grants me opportunity. Um, many of you are fairly familiar with what the Bible says about last days, but many might not be. So let me just share a few thoughts, some of which are indisputable, and some are simply associated with my own particular view. My own attitude is, if it turns out that I am wrong about my view of end-time events, I will simply shrug my shoulders and say, huh, I guess I was wrong. I won't be shocked, and it won't make much of a difference to me. It certainly won't diminish my faith in any way. It'll just be confirmation that I don't know everything and that it pays to remain humble and teachable. And here's an important note. Many elements interspersed in end-time events will seem pretty wild on the surface. In fact, they can be pretty wild when you dig deep. But here's a very, very important point. I cannot overemphasize this. Consider Genesis 1.1, the first verse in the Bible, even the first few words, Bereshit bara Elohim. That's in the beginning God created. For the time being, we can even leave off the word created. Just Bereshit Elohim. In the beginning God. If you accept that, in the beginning God, you can never, ever, ever later on in the text say, well, that's impossible, or I don't know about that, or that doesn't seem plausible. If you believe that God exists, nothing is impossible for God. He is all-powerful. In the end-time events, um, if it says it's important and it's going to happen, independent of whether or not we like it or understand it or believe it's possible, it's going to happen. And and it must be important because God wrote quite a bit in the Bible about these things. So I admit, a lot of the stuff seems really wild to me, but I have to take it just as seriously as anything else because God laid it out for us in Scripture. So really quick, the last days, these are some of my views plus some other things that everyone agrees on. Um, first of all, it makes sense that if God has a very specific plan for the beginning and the, quote, middle of his creation— there would be also an end game as well. Not just some, well, I got it started, you do whatever you want from now out attitude. It was just, no, he's, he had a plan for how it was going to start. He knew how it would be corrupted. He was going to fix that, and he has a plan too of how it's all going to wind up. And he has told us a fair amount about that. Jesus himself said that while we don't know the day and the hour of his return, it's Matthew 25, verse 36, we can know when it's near. And he gave us signs to be watching for. Do you think we should know what those are? Do you think we should be watching and warning others? I don't want to delve into preaching in this podcast because I, I promoted it as a chronological overview of events. So I'll, I'll stick with that as best, best as I can, but I'm still offering a few points of insight here. Um, some signs. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gave some of these signs. He said, you're not going to know exactly when it is, but you're going to see signs when you know it's near. And he lists a bunch of them. There are increases of false prophets, people claiming to be the Messiah. It's 
been kind of an explosion of that. Wars and rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes, persecution, spread of the gospel. Those things have been going on for quite a while. But Jesus said those things in particular will be signs of the end time. So I believe they're going to heat up quite a bit. Otherwise, if it's just business as usual, they wouldn't be signs. So we should expect those things to become more and more significant. There are other signs. The rebirth of the nation of Israel. So Israel in the Old Testament, they had their temple and they were worshiping. And then when Jesus is here, the temple is there, but it gets destroyed in 70 A.D. by Titus, Roman Emperor Titus in 70 A.D. No nation in the history of of this planet has ever been dispersed and then come back together again as a nation. It's never happened, but it was predicted in Ezekiel 37 in the Old Testament that that would happen with Israel. Well, guess what? 1948, the rebirth of the nation of Israel, and they retook their capital, Jerusalem, in 1967. So they have come back together as a nation again. That's one of the signs of the end times. Jesus also said in Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah, that's how it's going to be in the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying, uh, when I come back, it's going to be kind of like it was in the days of Noah. Okay, what was it like then? Genesis 6-5 says about this time. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was so incredibly bad just before the flood that God said, time's up, judgment is coming. Well, what's going on today? You all know that over time, things have always been slowly getting worse morally. They just keep pushing the envelope, accepting more and more stuff. It's kind of been a slow downhill trend. But within the past few years, the wheels have fallen off and everything has gone upside down. Almost everything that we would say was wrong before, it's not only right, but you need to celebrate it. And if you don't, you're a bigot. And it is getting crazy. I think we are starting to parallel the way it was at the time of the flood. And Jesus said, when you see that parallel, it's a sign of his return. When Christ does return, it will be in the context of great judgment on the earth and all those who have rejected Jesus as a Messiah and rejected his offering of salvation as a free gift. The Bible mentions a number of the things related to the last days. It talks about a rapture. The word rapture is not in the Bible. The word Bible is not in the Bible. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. But you can defend those concepts from the descriptions that we're giving, and sometimes we make up words to describe these concepts, like Trinity, rapture. First Thessalonians 4.17 talks about being caught up in the air. We, we use the word rapture to talk about being caught up. The Bible talks about a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. It's never happened before. That will happen in the end times. A new world leader will rise up and an antichrist. A new one-world government. We are we are racing towards that today. One global currency where you need a certain mark to be able to buy, trade, or sell. That was unimaginable a number of years ago. Now with technology, it's a no-brainer. We are racing towards that as well. There's a period of tribulation and great tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, and then the physical return of Christ. That's the second coming of Christ, which ushers in eternity with only two destinations at that point. One would be spending eternity with Christ. 
the other one's separated in punishment. And there's a lot more in, in the book of Revelation and all these things. It's fascinating. But that winds up the New Testament in a nutshell. Again, we could spend hours and hours and hours and hours going over more details, but I needed to keep it relatively short to give you the big picture. Um, I hope that this is somewhat helpful in getting the big picture, the timeline of the New Testament. Uh, where are we headed next? I was initially having a hard time deciding what to cover um, because there's so many different directions I could go, but I've actually decided based on two things. One, my podcast producers, KJ and Alex, hey guys, they requested and suggested a topic, and when I thought about it, it actually ties into what we just discussed. So with this timeline, what is the most significant event on the horizon? What's the next biggest thing coming up? Well, the return of Christ. The Bible prophesied that in the last days, just prior to the return of Christ, skeptics will doubt the return of Christ. Why? They're doubting the return of Christ because it says they are purposely ignoring two significant things. Now, you might guess that these things that they're ignoring would be spiritual things because it's causing them to doubt the return of Christ. However, you'd be wrong. In the New Testament book, 2 Peter chapter 3, written almost 3,000 years ago, Peter is talking about the last days, the end times. And he's talking about these skeptics who are doubting the return of Christ. And Peter says that they are doubting the return of Christ because of two things, and here are the two things. Number one, they are rejecting the Genesis creation account. Number two, they are rejecting the Genesis flood. What? What's the connection there? How is that connected with people doubting the return of Christ? It makes perfect sense. By rejecting the Genesis creation account, people are rejecting God as the ultimate authority. God created everything and he owns it all. He gets to set the rules. They don't like that, so they reject God as creator. They can kind of do whatever they want then. By rejecting the Genesis flood, what was that? That was God's judgment on sin. Well, they're not sinners. They're good people. They don't need God's judgment. So they're rejecting the judgment of God. Well, what's the second coming of Christ? Another judgment by God. Well, they rejected the first judgment. They're going to reject the second judgment. So since those things, creation and the flood, are so important, I'm going to jump into one of those first. We're going to talk about the Genesis flood. I will discuss the significance of the event, some common myths about it, and then scientific evidence that it actually happened. It's going to be unbelievably fascinating and much more significant than you ever dreamed. And we'll get to the creation thing too, maybe right after the flood. That one, that's like my forte. I can't wait till we, we get there. But if you've been listening to this um, and would love to take a tour of the Grand Canyon with a personal guide, me, <laughs> Get a hold of us as soon as possible. Depending upon when you're listening, if you're listening after this was just released in, what is it, June 2023, we have five tours planned this summer. Uh, the June one's already closed. Of the remaining four, three still have spots on them. Our trip in July, August, and October of 2023. Um, contact us right away at thestartingpointproject.com. Thestartingpointproject.com. These trips are phenomenal. They're family-friendly, super easy, super low cost. You'll be on the rim of the canyon looking a mile down to the Colorado River, and I'll explain what you're seeing there. The next day, we're on the Colorado River. 
smooth sailing going on rafts. It's not whitewater rafting. You see petroglyphs. We go around the famous Horseshoe Bend. Then we go through the famous Antelope Canyon. Then we go um, to the top of Horseshoe Bend. You look down to see where you are rafting. We watch the sunset. We see dinosaur footprints. We stay in hotels, eat at restaurants. It's awesome. So if you're interested in any of that, get a hold of us as soon as possible. If you're listening to this at a later date, still contact us because we're doing tours each year and uh, we'll probably have one that's available soon after you get a hold of us. So make sure you come back next time for the next podcast where we're talking about the Genesis flood. Invite a friend and please subscribe. And if you can, leave a five-star review. Very, very helpful for getting the message out in these broadcasts. You will not want to miss the next series. I always say that, but it's it's true. You, this one is going to be incredible, and I guarantee you, you're going to learn a lot of things you have never heard before. They're going to be fascinating. So we will catch you next time. God bless. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Starting Point Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's the number one way to help us reach more and more people with these important and inspiring messages. To learn more about myself, Jay Siegert, and The Starting Point Project, please visit us at thestartingpointproject.com. We'll catch you next time.